Okay, we are in chapter 30, and we are on this chapter that's dealing with the Lord's Supper. And usually we do the Lord's Supper on the first uh, Sunday of the month, but I wanted to finish this chapter in the teaching on it because there are a few minor alterations that we're going to make in the way that we practice it. Uh, And so I wanted to finish teaching on it and then institute those things, and that'll begin next week. So that's why we're not doing it today, but we will uh, next week. And that way everyone has plenty of time to prepare themselves and think about those things and Um, Anyway, but as we've been reading in Psalm 119, anytime we're making changes or we're altering our practice because we're trying to conform more to the Word of God, we should run in the pathway of God's commandments. That should be a joy and a delight for us to know God's will and to conform our practices as closely as we can to what is in the Word of God. And that's what we should desire in all things, whether that be our church life whether that be our personal life, our marriages, our homes, our families, whatever it is, to conform our life to the life of Christ, to the will of Christ, and to do those things pleasing to him. So we've been dealing with these issues related to both baptism and the Lord's Supper, and chapter 30 is dedicated to teaching on the Lord's Supper, what it means, what it doesn't mean, and then who are the worthy recipients, and that's what we will look at today. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll have our Bible study. Father, we thank you for, Lord, our time to be together today. Lord, your goodness and kindness to us. Lord, in giving us your word, and Lord, putting us together in this body with like-minded believers. And Lord, we do pray that our desires, our attitude would always be to know more and more of your will. Lord, we know that none of us will ever have perfect knowledge in this life. We're always growing in our understanding. And Father, I pray that we would always be humble, a humble people who are coming to your word, Lord, asking you to teach so that we might run in the pathway of your commandments. And Lord, we pray that as we come to a greater understanding, as you open our eyes more and more, Lord, that we would not resist or be hesitant Lord, to do your will, Lord, to not make excuses, but rather that we would have the attitude of a faithful slave who delights to do the will of his master. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give to us that attitude today as we study your word and that you would be with us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Okay, chapter 30, paragraph 7, and here we... um, We'll read the the paragraph and then look at the scriptures. And just as a way of reminder, the reason we are using the confession is simply as a platform to go to the Bible, right? To go to the Bible uh, so that we have in a short summary statement condensed the teaching of the Bible on this topic or that topic. But as we've said from the beginning, the most important part of any confession is the scriptures. The scripture references, looking those up, and if the chapter itself or if the paragraph does not conform to what the Bible says, then we need to reject that paragraph or throw it away, right? Because then it's not helpful at all. It's only helpful insofar as it points us to the Bible and it helps us to understand what is in the Bible. So we're not using this because we need to depend upon men, We're using this as a platform to go to the Bible and to understand what the Bible says. And insofar as what the confession teaches, 
is consistent with the teaching of the Bible, then it is a helpful, useful resource and tool for us to know what the Word of God says. But ultimately, in all things, God's Word must be supreme. This is all that matters, is the Word of the Lord. So chapter 30, paragraph 7, says, Worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements in this ordinance also by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. Here, worthy recipients, worthy recipients, not everyone is a worthy recipient, to partake of these things, and we'll deal with that in the next paragraph. But those who are worthy recipients, who come to the Lord's table, outwardly they are partaking of visible elements. The visible elements are the bread and the wine, and these are what they are partaking of outwardly, physically. This is what they're actually putting into their mouth is a piece of bread, and what they're putting into their mouth is a little bit of wine right there from the cup. So the visible elements are what they partake of outwardly, but inwardly, spiritually, they are receiving and feeding on Christ crucified, right? The spiritual component, right, what the bread and what the cup represent are the body and blood of the Lord. We don't partake of the body and blood of the Lord physically, right, outwardly, because the elements are bread and wine, but we do partake of the body and blood of the Lord spiritually by faith as we rightly comprehend and understand what the bread and wine represent. Through the scriptures, we understand that these represent the body and the blood of Christ, which has been given for our salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. And when we see these things and we believe by faith in the person and work of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, then we are, spiritually speaking, feeding on the body and the blood of Christ, and we receive the benefits of his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. So that's the way the ordinance works. There is a physical outward component that represents a spiritual invisible reality. We partake of the physical, literally and physically, but we partake of the spiritually by faith right, by faith in understanding what the physical represents. And this is the way it always has been in all symbols. All symbols instituted by the Lord are physical representations of spiritual realities. And the key component in any of these things is faith. We must have true faith, true belief in what these things represent, and we must have the true understanding, Right? You can't have true faith without a right understanding of what it represents. And where does that faith and that understanding always come from? It has to come from the Word of God. We have to understand these things by the Word of God, which is why when we take the Lord's Supper, it is always accompanied before we partake with the reading of Scripture. The reading of Scripture because it is the Scriptures that open our eyes to understand what these things mean. All right, that's what we have to have. And without the faith, it's of no benefit at all. If we don't have faith in what it represents, then we're just eating a little bit of bread and drinking a little bit of wine, but it does not have any spiritual benefit, and we are not in any way receiving a benefit from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Here they say, they do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually, right? They partake of the death of the body and blood of Christ really and truly, right? So we are truly partaking of it, but this is spiritually, spiritually speaking, not bodily and physically. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance. This is what we dealt with last time, which is contrary to what Roman Catholicism teaches and Lutheranism, if you read some of what Luther said, he was pretty wacky on these things as well, but not as wacky as the Roman Catholics, who teach that the bread actually turns into the body of Christ and that the wine actually turns into the blood of Christ so that when they put the bread in their mouth, they're literally physically putting the body of Jesus Christ into their mouth. And when they drink the cup, they are literally physically drinking the blood of Christ. Okay, we reject any superstition and any notion of those things. The body and blood are not present physically, but spiritually, in that these things represent the body and blood of Christ. And when we understand them by faith, then we are receiving the benefits of the person and work of Christ. So they are there spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. So there is the outward and there is the inward, the visible, the invisible, the physical, the spiritual. The physical is the bread and the blood. The spiritual is the body, or the physical is the bread and the wine. The spiritual is the body and the blood of Christ. And those are all there truly in the proper sense if we are taking the Lord's Supper by faith, by faith, faith being the key component. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians ten sixteen it says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So there, the cup of blessing is sharing in the blood of Christ, and the bread which is broken is a sharing in the body of Christ. Again, not physically, literally in that way, but spiritually. When we partake of the cup and the bread, we are partaking spiritually of the blood and of the body of Christ. Then 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there, again, when Jesus says... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He simply means that the broken bread represents his body. It symbolizes his body. And then the cup of wine also symbolizes 
the new covenant in my blood, the covenant of redemption, the salvation covenant, which is based upon the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And the cup of wine represents the blood of Christ in the new covenant. Not that it is actually the blood of Christ, but it represents those things. Okay, another passage not listed in your confession. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. Now here, he's talking about the tabernacle and the priesthood from the old covenant. But what he's saying in terms of the symbol would apply to the bread and the cup, okay? The bread and the cup. That these are after a pattern, a heavenly spiritual pattern. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Notice there, he's talking about our great high priest who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's seated at the right hand. And Jesus was a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle. Now, true tabernacle, he's saying that in contrast to what? To the one on earth. The one on earth was not the true tabernacle, though it was a tabernacle and though it was instituted by God, they were always to understand that the tabernacle on earth represented the true tabernacle. And where is the true tabernacle of God? It's in heaven with God. Okay, So he's making this uh, distinction between the heavenly tabernacle and the earthly tabernacle. Between the heavenly high priest and the earthly high priest. Okay, Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So here, when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle on earth, he was warned by God. Notice that. God warned him. God threatened him, told him, when you erect the tabernacle on earth, you better make sure that you do it exactly the way I told you. So was, did God give Moses any leeway in the way that he erected the tabernacle? Did he say, okay, generally speaking, do it like this, but you can take a little license here and there to, uh, you know, spice it up a little bit, you know, talk to the people, see what they like, you know, and if you want to change some things here and there, that's okay. Did he say, these are the things that are essential when you erect the tabernacle, these other things are non-essential. You can do it if you want, or you can reject it if you like. He didn't do anything like that. He warned him. He warned him and said, make all things according to the pattern 
which was shown to you on the mountain. Now the pattern, what is the pattern? The pattern is the true reality. So what was erected on earth was a representation of a true spiritual reality that existed in heaven. And this is the tabernacle that Christ exercises his ministry in. So here, what was there on earth in terms of the temple or the tabernacle, then later the temple, the furniture that decorated that tabernacle, all of the various things, the altar, the way they were constructed, the priest, the sacrifice, uh, the incense, everything that was offered in relationship to that worship, all of those things were symbols that represented a true spiritual reality. And that's the way that they were to understand it. And that's why he tells him to make it after the pattern that you were shown on the mountain. Well, this would be the same with the Lord's Supper and the same with baptism. These are symbols of a spiritual reality. We need to understand the spiritual. The spiritual is the more significant point, right? It is the greater point. And then the physical is there to aid us and to assist us so that we might better comprehend and understand the spiritual reality. That's why the Lord Jesus instituted and gave the Lord's Supper for us, so that we would do it in remembrance of him, that it would be a reminder to us of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and that we need to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So he is the true reality of these things, and we need to comprehend and see him in those things. Right? And the people in the Old Covenant, if they didn't understand what the tabernacle represented, what the priests represented, what the animal sacrifices represented, then how is it of any value to them? Right? It was no value at all. If they did not understand and by faith behold what those things represented, then it was, complete, it was just a ritual for them to go through, which was a large part the problem with Israel and a large part the problem with the churches today. People go through rituals without any understanding of what they mean, and they think that as long as they do the ritual, they're going to go to heaven. But it, that's not the way it works. You have to have faith. You must believe in what the ritual represents. And that's the greater part. Okay, paragraph 8. All ignorant and ungodly people are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ and are thus unworthy of the Lord's table. As long as they remain in this condition, they cannot partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted to the Lord's table without committing a great sin against Christ. All those who receive the supper unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment on themselves. Here, all ignorant people and all ungodly people, right? they call people ignorant and ungodly, because in the world there are ignorant people and there are ungodly people. And those who are ignorant and ungodly are unfit. They are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, because Christ is himself not ignorant, and Christ is himself not ungodly. But Christ is holy, and he is uh, full of wisdom. And only those who are converted, only true believers, are qualified to be recipients of the Lord's table. And a person who is not a believer, a true believer, is unworthy of the Lord's table and should not be permitted to come there. 
Now, in terms of the profane and the ungodly who are outside, who we know who are unbelievers, then of course they should not be permitted to partake of the Lord's table. But in terms of hypocrites, right, there are people who come in for a season, for a moment of time, they appear to be like us, they may partake of those things, but even then, whenever we are teaching on this, we should always set the parameters to people. That what, what is required? You must be a true believer. You must be baptized properly. You must be seeking to live a godly life. Put that on the people, and then it's their responsibility. It's their responsibility, unless there is some known scandalous sin that you know about, and then you might intercede in that way. So ignorant, ungodly people are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ and are thus unworthy of the Lord's table, right? And, and again, that needs to be taught, clearly explained to people, put it on them, and then their blood is on their own head. Such was the case with Judas Iscariot. Did Jesus allow Judas to partake of the Lord's Supper? Did he serve the Passover to him that night? He did. However, he knew what Judas was. So whose responsibility was it? Whose guilt is it? It's Judas's. It's Judas's. Jesus is free from guilt, even though he knew what kind of a man he was. And in the same way in the churches, we can't know exactly what's going on in every single person, right? What they may be hiding, what may be taking place. So all we can do is the best that we can do. And that is to make it clear that these are the ones who are admitted to the Lord's table. And then if they don't listen, their blood is on their own head and they will be held accountable for their own sin. As long as they remain in this condition, they cannot partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted to the Lord's table without committing a great sin against Christ. Right? People have to understand this. If we are partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, we are committing a great sin against Christ. It is sacrilege. It is blasphemy against the name of Christ. We are taking the name of Christ in vain and we are polluting and perverting the very holy things of God. So this is sacrilegious. It is a great sin against Christ. All those who receive the supper unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord eating and drinking judgment on themselves. Those who partake of the supper in an unworthy may an unworthy way are guilty of the blood and body of the Lord. Isn't that a very great offense? So we should take this very seriously when we come together for the Lord's Supper. It should not be something that we do willy-nilly, that we do lightly, without any examination, without being circumspect in the way that we're living. We should consider how we are living, who we are, so that we're not committing great sins against Christ and becoming guilty of the body and blood of the Lord so as to eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. Right? We should not do those things. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18. says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, 
I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So there, believer and unbeliever, righteousness, lawlessness, light, darkness, Christ with Belial, believer with unbeliever, temple of God with idols. These things have nothing to do with one another. They are at war. They are at odds. They are at contrast with one another. So what does an unholy, profane man have to do with the holy table of the Lord? He has nothing to do with those things, and he should not come and partake of the Lord's table. He should not take these sacred things, these things that have been dedicated to the Lord, that are holy from the Lord, and profane them with his unholy mouth, right? He should not do that. So they are forbidden from partaking of these things. And they, if they do so, they do so to their own ruin and demise. And this is why, in terms of the church, we want to be very guarded in the way that we conduct the ministry so that the ministry itself serves as a filter for those coming into the church. If we are preaching the Bible correctly, if we are insisting on godliness and repentance of sin, most people, even most so-called Christians, are going to run for the hills. They're not going to want anything to do with what's going on here. So if we're conducting the ministry correctly, that itself is going to be a determinant from many profane people coming into the church, right? From the rabble coming in. So we should be conducting it. We shouldn't be trying to appeal to the masses, dumbing things down to the lowest common denominator, doing all sorts of games and having parties and fun all the time so that we can draw big crowds. Because if we do that, what are we going to draw in? The riffraff, right? That's what's going to come in, these types of profane people, and then it's going to spool everything. It's going to spool us, and it's going to spool the Lord's table. So we shouldn't be doing that. So if we're conducting the ministry correctly, then the types of people who will be attracted and drawn to the church are going to be the right types. But then even still, if we have some riffraff that comes in among us, then we put it on them and call them in the proper way to take the Lord's table. And then if they don't do so correctly, then their blood is on their own head. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This would be concerning the judgment that can happen and has happened for those who take the supper in an unworthy way. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. And we remember, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. So if he did this to them, what makes us think he won't do it in our church? That he won't do it today? And again, this is after the day of Pentecost. This is the loving God of the New Testament, right? As people wrongly say. And yet, the loving God of the New Testament, who is the same loving God of the Old Testament, is putting people to death because they are partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So here, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner makes one guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And here, in the case of what was going on in Corinth, when they were meeting together, he said in verse 20, it was not for the Lord's supper. And then verse 21, in eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which you eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So here, in their case, what they're doing is they're being selfish, self-centered in the way they are taking of the Lord's Supper. They're not considering one another, which is contrary to the very institution itself. The very institution of the Lord's Supper should be a reminder to us of our common salvation, that we are part of one body in Christ, that we are individually members one of another, and that we should love each other, right? We should love one another as Christ has loved the church. Christ loved us, so we ought to love one another. But that's not what they're doing. So they're doing the exact opposite of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to teach and represent among them. And in doing that, they're doing it in an unworthy manner. And when you do that, he says, you become guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So what should a person do? Examine himself. And then he should eat and drink. Examine yourself to make sure you're not coming with the wrong attitude, the wrong motives, in a sinful way. You're not living an unrepentant, sinful life. Again, he's not talking about perfectionism. No one can attain sinless perfection. If sinless perfection was the requirement to partake of the Lord's table, then who would be able to partake? None of us would, right? None of us would. So we can't be talking about that, but he means humbly, with faith, not doubting, right? Trying to overcome our sin, trying to pursue a righteous life, right? That we're living in this type of way and we're not being selfish in the way that we are coming together. And if we don't do that, then we'll bring judgment upon ourselves. As he says in 29, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge, judge the body rightly, right? You bring judgment on yourself. And then he says, this is why some are weak and sick and a number sleep. God is afflicting the church with weakness, with sickness, and some with death, even putting them to death because of the way they are partaking of the Lord's table. So this should cause us to be sober-minded, to have sobriety when we approach the table of the Lord and make sure that we're doing it in the proper way so that we don't be judged. We judge ourselves so that we don't come under the judgment of God and make sure that we're doing it in a way worthy of the Lord. Then Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, 
verse 6. It says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So don't give holy things to dogs, and don't give pearls to swine. Well, isn't the Lord's Supper a holy thing? Yes. So should we give it to dogs? No. Dogs, which are descriptive of unbelievers, should not be given the Lord's Supper. Right? They should be forbidden from these things. And the pearl, the pearl of great price, who is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is represented in the Lord's Supper, should that great pearl be given to a swine of a man? No. No way. We should not. And if they'll turn and trample us under our, their feet. So, no, we don't want that to be the case at all. So, we need to examine ourselves, make sure we're not a swine or a dog, and that we're not coming in an unworthy way, and then hold each other accountable in these things. Okay? So, that's our conclusion of the Lord's Supper and baptism uh, that we've done here uh, recently. And so, next week, we will start... And kind of what I'm thinking in terms of the way that we will do the Lord's Supper is up to this point, we've been doing it once a month, and I want us to start doing it once a week, right, as a part of our weekly service and worship of God. Because of what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and that they are for us to remember him. Well, is it good for us to remember Christ? It's good for us to remember him every week. And this is the Lord's day, is it not? Right, the Lord's day, one day in seven devoted to the Lord. So what better thing for us to do than to take of the Lord's Supper every Sunday when we gather together uh, with the church of Jesus Christ. So that is what we will start doing, uh, I think. And then also um, the way that we will distribute it. Uh, in the past, I have broken the bread before you arrived, actually about 9.30 in the morning. So, but we're not going to do that anymore. We'll leave it whole. And as Christ did, he took it in their presence. He blessed it, he broke it, and then he distributed it to them. So that that symbol is seen and visible to the people. So that's the way we'll do it. We'll bless the bread, we'll break the bread, we'll distribute the bread. And then the cup. And as we, when we studied, we saw that they used the common cup. They used the common cup, and then they passed it amongst themselves. And so that's what we will do as well. And then also, we'll use the communion wine instead of the grape juice, as we've been using. Okay, so those are the ways that we'll do it. I think in terms of logistics, to make it easier, what we'll do is after lunch, we'll do the Lord's Supper. And if everyone would sit up in the rows during the Lord's Supper... It'll make it easier for us to distribute and pass everything. And then after we do the Lord's Supper, we'll pray and thank God for that. And then if you want to go back to your normal seats, because I know that some of you like sitting at tables because it's easier to take notes, then you can do that. Okay? Does that make sense? So that's the way that we will do that. And I know, again, it's different. It'll be a change from what we've done in the past. But I, again, as we were saying earlier, anytime we make changes... And the changes make us more consistent with what was being done in the Bible, then those are good changes, right? Those are the kind of changes that we want, and we should rejoice in those things. And I think that it'll be better. Now, I know that probably the bigger issue will be the common cup. 
you know, uh, because uh, we've got raging worldwide global pandemic that's been going on for 10 years, or no, it's just a couple of years now. And so I thought about doing an auction, you know, and auctioning off the uh, spots, you know, who, who gets to go first, you know, but anyway, we're not gonna do that. But we'll just do it according uh, to where people are, are sitting, uh, seated, uh, but uh, anyway, and, and we'll just do it, do it that way and do uh, the best that we can there. So I think, that's the way that Jesus did it, and I think that's the way that we should do it as well, and it shouldn't be uh, a big obstacle for us to overcome. So, okay, well, let's pray, and then we will be dismissed. Father, we thank you for our time to be together today, and Lord, we do thank you for your word, and Lord, how it does instruct and teach us in all things. Lord, we do want our lives to conform, Lord, as much as, as we possibly can to your word, and Lord, as we gain understanding, Lord, in terms of your will, Lord, in terms of the practices, Lord, even in these symbols that you have instituted, Lord, you are the Lord of the church. You are the only one who can ordain uh, one of these uh, symbols or ritual for the church. And that, Lord, just as you told Moses to make sure that he erected it exactly according to the pattern that he was shown on the mountain, so, Lord, we want to practice these things in the same way that you instituted them. Lord, we don't want to take any liberty in terms of the elements, Lord, what we are partaking of. Lord, we don't have a right to change the bread into something else. We don't have a right to change the wine into something else. But rather, we should use the elements that you used. And, Lord, we should use them the way that you use them. And so, Father, we want... Uh, this to be our practice. And so we pray that you would help us, Lord, to see the benefits, Lord, in obedience to you, Lord, in conforming to your will, Lord, in walking in the pathway of your commandments, and that, Lord, it might be a blessing for us. And, Lord, how can it not be? It's always a blessing for us, Lord, when we obey you. So, Lord, help us and continue as we, Lord, continue to grow in our understanding, Lord, over the years to come. Lord, if ever we see that something in our own personal life or our family, Lord, or in our church, Lord, is not consistent with what was being practiced in your word, Lord, may we never question your word, but rather may we question our own practices and, Lord, seek to conform our life more closely, Lord, to your will. Lord, be with us as we go from here today. Give us safety as we travel home. And Lord, continue to bless us on this Lord's Day. And Lord, may you be glorified in all that we do. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.